Colossians chapter 2. We're looking at verses 1 through 5 this morning. Colossians chapter 2, verse 1 through 5. Let me read that. Verse number 1, Colossians chapter 2. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude you with pers persuasive argument. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Let's pray. Father, this morning again as we come to your word, Lord, the precious word of God that you have superintended and protected up until this day and will forever, that, Lord, we would take your word seriously and that, Lord, we would listen and we would then meditate upon it and then put the word of God into practice in our own life and that we would also, Lord, examine ourselves by it. So, Lord, that we can know that we're walking in light of your word. That we can know also that we're saved by Christ and that we have your spirit to lead and direct us. So bless us, Lord, as we look at thy word this morning. In Christ I pray, amen. So I've been saying that once you have become a Christian, and have purposed in your heart that you are going to hold fast to the hope that has been given to you in Christ Jesus and that you are determined to continue in it and that you have been convinced by Scripture that you should not be moved away from the truth or the hope of the gospel no matter what happens in your life. See, the bottom line is in Colossians here that as long as a believer in Christ continues growing in the faith, growing in the knowledge of the Word of God, that they will become established and firm, not easily moved away from the hope that they have learned in the gospel. And they will experience at that point the reality of being new in Christ. You are not the person you used to be. You are new, and every day is new. And that Christ is the sole focus and center of your life. And he is, when he is, then we begin to understand newness. But while we cooperate with the Holy Spirit in making us holy and spiritually mature, on our way to eternal glory, we experience conflict. As a Christian, we were not aware of this conflict when we remained captive in Satan's domain. But once we were moved from his dark domain to the kingdom of God's dear son, because of our faith in Jesus Christ, at that point we entered into spiritual conflict. And the conflict we entered will have many fronts to it, but the main front will be in the area of doctrine and practice. They both go together. Doctrine and practice. Especially the doctrines concerning God, concerning Jesus Christ the authority base which holds up our belief system and our moral standards and our way of living is the Holy Scriptures. 
And this conflict, by another name, as mentioned in Ephesians, is spiritual warfare. I didn't know if you knew that you were in spiritual warfare when you became a Christian. We are fighting against demonic ideology. It is, the, is a fight for the heart and the mind. A good example of, of this fight that is going on, this ideological struggle, is observed really in the blindness of people. As I mentioned last time, the Ligonier ministry uh, went on college campuses and they were asking students this one question. This is a different question. They were asking them, what do you think about God? Who do you think God is? One student said, who do I think God is? I think you're asking the wrong person because I'm not quite sure myself that really anything. Another said, I believe that there is some higher being, but I don't believe in quote-unquote God. Another one said, who do you think God, who do I think God is? I don't think, I think he's just a spiritual form. Another one said, really, no one really knows what God is really like. It's just that in the Bible, it tells you how they picture him as being, nobody really knows. And then one person says, I have faith that there, there's something out there, you know. I don't know what it is. I'm going to pursue it more. But right now, I'm not sure about whether monotheism is right or whether we become one part of the universe or whatever. But heck, Man, I'm only 18 years old. I don't know. And then one did say this. I believe God is like an all-supreme, all-knowledgeable, omnipotent being. Now, that was the closest one. But in all those statements, we can see that there's a problem. And the problem is that people do not know who God is. And the reason why they don't know who God is is because they're looking for him and they're finding information about him in all the wrong places. The only place that you can find out about God and who he is is in his own self-revelation in the word of God. So we're number one this morning. If you look at verse number one, we're in a warfare. We're in a warfare. It says this, and this warfare is conflict it says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf. This is Paul writing, and he is saying to the people that he's writing to that he is struggling for them. And this term struggle kind of jumps off the page in order in, to inform the readers of his agona is the word, or that we get the word agonize. He's agonizing over something. He's struggling. He's contending. Metaphorically, he's in a race. And it's pictured here of exertion put out in the face of opposition, like a conflict or a struggle or a fight. And the picture is really of an athletic contest, which is strenuous and demanding and characterizes, which really characterizes most of the Christian life. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, is using the word in a more figurative way to describe an intense, non-physical struggle. That Paul also included the word in verse number two, uh, verse number one, great struggle. And it describes the size and intensity of his ongoing inner wrestling. And the struggle was in his own heart for the people he never met. He never met the Colossians. He never met them. And so he's writing to them. And so Paul is letting them know, listen, this real struggle that's going on in my heart is for you people. But these Jews and Gentile converts were now in Christ, 
So he struggled for them. And how did he do that? Well, if you look at chapter 1, verse number 9, he says this, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So he's wrestling before God for these people in prayer. And he's wrestling for the very things that will hinder reaching the final goal. And that is to be firmly established in the faith. And to remain, once you're there, steadfast, unmovable by whatever's going to come your way. Whatever ideology is going to press into your life or against you. Because the greatest conflict that we will have as Christians is the conflict against false teaching. And if the enemy can get us to have a low view of God and ignore his word and God's revelation of himself and mix it together with other teachings that add and take away from the authority of the word of God and the revelation of God himself, he will do it. He will use any teaching, flying out, flying around us at any time, that it's going to carry us away from the truth. And then once he does that, you know what he does? He leaves you to bleed and to be bruised and broken and confused. He leaves you, in other words, wavering and wobbling. I, I don't know if, if I really believe God anymore. I don't really believe that Jesus is exclusively the way to be saved. There's got to be many ways. See, people wobble in those things. It happens all the time. People are leaving the faith who once professed the faith. Why is that? Well, again, in Ephesians, it says, in chapter 4, verse 13 and 14, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And as a result of that, as a result of maturity, spiritual maturity, we are no longer children. To be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and by craftiness in deceitful scheming. You mean people are trying to trick you? Yes. You know why? Because people are, being, are the puppets of Satan and they want to trick you. It's like people who say, you know what? I've been a Christian for a while, but I, I want more. It was a woman named Sarah Young who writes a book, Jesus is Calling, and she said in her book, I know God gave the Bible, but I yearn for more. Well, if you yearn for more apart from and beyond the scriptures, Satan will give it to you. It's all in the word of God. That's what God's given us. In fact, more and more church leaders are adopting a pragmatic approach to ministry using what is culturally expedient and completely ignoring what Scripture says about the priorities in the church. And now churches don't look like what the Bible says. It looks like what the culture says. Another influence that has rapidly gained momentum in our culture is mysticism. This teaches that enlightenment comes from within you. Go inside yourself and find enlightenment. And it emphasizes a mystical phenomena, phenomena such as visions and signs and wonders and miraculous personal revelations. It's the spiritual formation movement that is prominent in our culture, and that is that their very teaching 
is go look within to find something meaningful. No, you can't. Don't look within. Look outside to God, to his word. And that's where you're going to find the stability and fulfillment that we desire in our hearts. So pragmatism, psychology, mysticism are nothing more than synthetic man-made substitutes used by Satan to undermine and infect the spiritual lives of believers. And they do not produce the results of doctrine that is according to godliness. Because real doctrine will produce godliness and holiness in your life. That's what the word of God will do. We have other things pressing upon the church from the culture, such as the critical race theory, race hatred, cancel culture, the LGBTQ agenda, the blurring of male and female identities, and a confused definition of marriage, and the list goes on and on and on and on. We may not have been aware how much error disintegrates the heart's confidence and produces trouble and doubt and confusion, or how error also snaps the bonds of love and splinters the church into parties. So error is seductive, it is destructive, it is a dangerous influence which is harmful to believers. So that's Paul's struggle, that the people that are are listening to the word of God, the people who have been genuinely saved would not be moved away from the truth. And the most effective antidote for any heresy is the proclamation of the doctrine of Christ. A cogent proof of Christ's absolute supremacy and exclusivity in the church. And false teachers also offer a secret knowledge which really blinds its followers by its failure to rightly exalt Christ and submit to him. In other words, they produce a heretical Christology. Truth is worth fighting for. It costs something to stand up and be counted and be unpopular. The human wisdom of our times is keep an open mind. Don't be too dogmatic. There's good in all religions. We'll all make it to the same place. Everybody's just coming a different way. But God says the opposite. Contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. There's no such thing as spiritual passivism. Service that counts costs. Being a Christian will cost you. And maybe that's some reasons why people are dropping off. Of course, people who drop off are really giving evidence they weren't really in in the first place. They weren't really Christians. So this conflict, if you notice in verse number one, is for on the behalf of others. It says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are laid to see and for all those who have not personally seen my face. So the Colossians and the Laodiceans are Paul's constituents. These, are the con- these congregations were probably less than 12 miles apart. And they had a lot of things in common with each other, especially in the area of the culture. They had a knowledge of the Apostle Paul, but not a personal face-to-face knowledge. Call Paul's compassion, despite his absence, in, is expressed in his written concern for his concern these constituents that he never met, that the Colossians may have thought he doesn't really care for 
us as much as he cared for the churches that he actually planted and visited. See, they never felt the magnetism of the personal experience uh, of hearing Paul, the Apostle Paul, preach. They were at a disadvantage, they thought. But Paul shows them that they have a very warm place in his heart for them. His love for them traveled beyond the limits of his eyesight. See, the apostle expresses how much he cared for them by wrestling in prayer for them so that they may stand firm in their faith. He even had other faithful workers who would do the same thing. If you look just at over to chapter 4, verse number 12, Epaphras also, who really probably was the founder of the church at Colossians, it says in chapter 4, verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayer, in his prayers, that you may what? Stand perfect and fully assured of all the will of God. So, so in other words, that prayer becomes a weapon against false teaching. So people would stand firm in what they believe and not be moved away from it. See, this is the goal of the struggle, spiritual maturity. And Paul's inward struggle also found its way into his outward, in outward action, not only in prayer, but his writing ministry. He would write these congregations a personal letter from his prison cell and fill them with the knowledge of that will, the will of God, warning them of the dangers all around them, which are common to all Christians, not just the Colossians. And he would supply encouragement to firm up their faith. If anyone knew the Christian struggle, the Apostle Paul knew the Christian struggle. So the Apostle was deeply concerned about the welfare of his readers. But you may have missed this. There's something going on here also in Scripture. That Scripture is also displaying before our very eyes how the gospel of Jesus Christ transforms a person from a hateful person to a now concerned person for the welfare of those he once disliked and persecuted. I'm talking about the Apostle Paul himself. He's a great miracle. He persecuted the church. He hated the thought of Jews and Gentiles getting together. They had to be always separate because the Gentiles were just not part of God's plan. And so he hated them, but now he's praying for them. And not only that, he has welfare for them. He's looking out for their welfare. Look at verse number 2 in Colossians chapter 2. It says that their hearts may be encouraged having been knit together in love and the attaining of all the wealth that comes from all the assurance of understanding resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself. He is saying to them there, listen, the, the, the conflict has a design objective. And the design ob objective is the purpose of the struggle is to come alongside other believers like the Colossians, like the Laodiceans, and keep their hearts knit together. That their hearts may be, it says, encouraged, having been knit together in love. So the encouragement will not come naturally to them. It doesn't come from within them. But it must come from outside themselves. That they will be encouraged as Paul comes alongside of them as their mature brethren in his writing ministry and he encourages them along with God himself encouraging them 
knowing that the written word is enough to be able to undergird our faith and encourage us to continue to walk forward in our faith in Christ Jesus. See, the heart, as it says there, that their hearts may be encouraged. See, the heart is the core of the individual. The heart distinguishes the center of personality, the source of willing and thinking in addition to feeling. So he's saying here, listen, every part of one's person is to be encouraged by the truth, and the truth is comprehensive, and it will encourage you in your mind. It will encourage you in your will. It will encourage you in your emotions. So the mind and the emotions and the will must be informed by the word of God for us to have stability in the faith. And when we cooperate with God in the transformation of our minds and opinions, which we once used while we lived in Satan's domain, that only a transformed mind then will be able to be unified so that we together as a church, as a body, we will be able to stand against error, not standing against error alone, no but together as a body. Encouragement of heart. Doug Moo, writer, writer, a commentary on Colossians says, he says, the encouragement of heart touches the deepest part of the being and affects every aspect of the transformed heart. So in other words, when you get saved, God has a comprehensive building project going on. He's convincing you in your mind. He's, your mind is affecting your emotions. And your emotions and your mind is affecting your will. And remember what the will is. The will is the result of what one does or decides to do in their life. So in other words, the word of God brings us to the place where we say, I decide because of truth from Scripture, to follow Jesus, to live for him with all my heart, my mind, my soul, my strength. So Scripture uses a very unique term also in verse number 2 in our passage, this term knit together. And it strictly means to cause to stand together figuratively, of the church as a body of Christ being united or joined together. And the picture for us is that the church body is interlocked like a knitted blanket. And you know what happens if there is a break in a weaved or knitted blanket. What happens usually is it starts to unravel. It then loosens its strength. It loses its vitality and its use. So how does a church keep from unraveling? Well, if you look in the text, look what it says. That there is a sphere in which a believer or the church is living that actually protects them from falling apart. And look what it says, again, that their hearts may be encouraged having been knit together in love. In love. So in other words, the sphere, this knitting is taking place is in the sphere of love, that the heart is united in love. The sphere of unity exists in the believer's strong ties of love. And we were just informed in Colossians that part of God's mystery is that the work of God in the death of Christ will break down ethnic barriers in the creation of one people. Now, just think, brethren, the two most antagonistic groups in all human history is who? It is... Gentiles, non-Jews, 
and Jews, of which Laodicea had a significant Jewish population. Both groups become one new person when they come to Christ in repentance and faith. So in other words, God brings together the most divided people groups from the most diverse backgrounds and worldviews and brings them into the church and makes them one united body. And the people who used to hate each other and fight each other now love each other. How does that happen? You know how that happens? Love toward each other because of Christ's love towards you and me. That's why. And this is not a gushy, sentimental love. This is love, as it says in Scripture, empowered by the Holy Spirit, like Romans 5, and the hope that does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within your hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And that it is a love experienced in the kingdom ruled by God's beloved Son, which we are now in because of our salvation. And it's love that unites against error. If you look over to Colossians chapter 3, look at verse number 14. It says, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. So loving the Lord Jesus Christ is what the Christian life is all about. It is where the unity and all the barriers, it's where the unity brings people together and the barriers are broken down. This is the distinguishing mark of the children of God. Love for the Lord Jesus Christ. That really would what differentiates biblical Christianity from all the rest of the religious systems. And this is what distinguishes true disciples from all others who are false followers of God. And that is what, what is absent from the teaching of the false teachers. There is not genuine unity in doctrine, and there's not genuine love amongst believers. You know, when you come to the Gospel of John, Abraham's, when Jesus was talking to the, the Jews there, and the, the people that he was talking to, he was just going back and forth with them, and they thought that, listen, just because we're Abraham's descendants, they thought they were right with God and already in the kingdom. Just because they were claimed to be Abraham's children. But at the same time, they were seeking to kill Jesus. And what does it say in John chapter 8, verse 42? Listen to what it says. Jesus said to them, if, you, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceed forth and have come from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative, initiative but he has sent me. So how important and serious is the matter of love to Jesus the Apostle Paul, in his final message and closing message to the first, first, in 1 Corinthians, declares that souls doomed to judgment are cursed for this reason, because they did not love the Lord. And this is what it says in Corinthians 16, 22. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Now you say, brother, that's pretty tough language. I know a lot of people who don't love God. But I tell you what, when we come to Christ, when we start, see, we start seeing God the way he's revealed in Scripture, and we start seeing people differently, no longer through the social, cultural, economic, or racial lenses that we once did, but now more through a biblical lens, as we're being transformed, as we're being made new, that we see the lost as those who need the gospel, so we have compassion towards them. And those who, who evidence the transforming results of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we count them as brothers and sisters in Christ, no matter who they are. 
no matter what culture they come from, no matter what skin color they have. It doesn't matter. We're all one in Christ. We're unified in Christ Jesus. So the Colossians and the Laodicean congregations comprised of Jews and Gentiles had already been demonstrating a Christian love because that is what their pastor, Epaphras, reported to the Apostle Paul. Look what it says in Colossians, what verse is that? Colossians chapter 1, verse 7 and 8. It says, just as you learned it from Epaphras, is that the one? Our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. Now, just think about that. When Epaphras is reporting to Paul what's going on in the congregation, why would he mention that they love each other? Why would, he, why would he even bring that up? You would think that doesn't seem so important. But for the Apostle Paul, it was greatly important because you know what it showed? This is what it showed. It showed that love is an overwhelming adoration for the Lord that produces genuine concern and the well-being for others, and it is evidence of genuine conversion to Christ. It's evidence that your prejudice is gone. And if we love God with a sincere and deepening affection, we must love the image of God wherever we find it. That's why when you read the epistle of 1 John, what do you find in 1 John? It says, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For those who do not love his brother whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. So when you love your brother the way the Bible says so, who do people see? They see God. Especially if they knew you before. And they knew your language and they knew your attitude towards people. But now you're different. So it's worth fighting for the unity of believers, which is knit together in love because love is a weapon for victory. Have you ever thought of love as a weapon? Well, it is a mighty one in God's arsenal. Even other places in Scripture, it uses warfare language with the word love in it. Listen to what it says in Thessalonians. But since we are in the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of salvation. And then, of course, in Ephesians, take up the whole arm of God so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. And then how does he end Ephesians like this? Peace to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be to all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. You know what that means, brethren? Gospel and doctrinal preaching softens the heart and produces love towards God and people. It does not harden the heart and make people mean. It does not. If that's the result, if your doctrinal understanding makes you mean, you've got the wrong doctrine. It makes you soft in heart. So you stop sending them those mean emails and those mean tweets and those mean Facebook comments. You know, Facebook can tell a lot about what's going on in your spiritual life. You better reread them before you send them. 
See, the biblical way of understanding love is vital to keeping the unity. Hedging against schisms within the body, hedging against strife between people, hedging against division in the body of Christ. And Scripture is saying to this to us because it is crucial for the Christian. It is not a take-or-leave proposition. It is an imperative virtue which grieves God when we do not show this love. See, love of the brethren, one person said, is the greatest concurrent advantage next to sound doctrine. That is true. That is true from these texts. That is true. In fact, this power is seen in the commandments, the Ten Commandments. Take your Bibles for a moment. Turn to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. And Romans 13 really does give us a sense about what the commandments produce in a believer. Romans 13 and verse number 8, notice what it says there. It says, owe nothing to anyone except what? To love one another. So do I owe anybody something? Yes. I owe the love that God's given me to them. That's what I owe them. And then it says this, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. But then notice in verse number, as it goes down in verse number 9, so you have to ask the question, well, how shall we love? Verse Commandment number seven, look what it says. You shall not commit adultery. Now, this is the second part of the Ten Commandments. The first part of the Ten Commandments is to love the Lord, right? To worship God. The second part is to love your neighbor. So he's using the second part of the commandments here. And in commandment number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Why is that? Because instead... What am I to do? I'm to preserve the sacredness of the marriage bond for myself and for others in the congregation. I'm to save people's marriage and not at all get involved with that. See, that's adultery. Also, the second one, commandment number six, you shall love, therefore, what? You shall not murder or hate. But instead of that, what should I do? I should help my fellow brother and sister to keep alive and well. I want the best for them. I want their best welfare. At one time, I maybe didn't even consider that. Now I do. Commandment number eight, you shall not steal. Instead, what should I do? I should help protect my brothers and sisters possession and if God's given you more than me thank God for that God blessed you and I want you to help you keep that and not steal anything from you and then of course commandment number 10 which is the big a big commandment you shall not covet verse 13 verse number 9 chapter 13 verse number 9 instead what do I do coveting something that is never should be mine even desiring something that I think should be mine is coveting. That's sin. You break the commandment. But instead, what shall I do? Instead, rejoice in the fact the Lord has blessed your neighbor and has given it to them and to praise God on how good he is. And then notice in the rest of verse number 9 of Romans chapter 13, and if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does, does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is a fulfillment of the law. I could never have done this before. But now, this is what I strive for. I strive for the well-being of other people. I strive for their well-being. Now, back to Colossians, and I want you to notice that there, there really is two goals. There's two goals 
of this knitting together. The first goal of this knitting together is keeping what God's given us, keeping our riches. Notice in verse number, the second part of verse number two, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding. So scripture is not referring to material wealth here. It is referring to wealth or riches that we have as believers in Christ, which consists of what? Conviction of an assured understanding and knowledge of God's mystery. So here's another weapon for victory, that there's a full assurance that God gives us. It is God's will that the saints be filled with the knowledge of his will and the message of God, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, that Christ alone, is the source of every conceivable bit of spiritual knowledge worth having. All the barriers are down, so the Jew and the Gentile saints alike are fellow heirs with Christ because he is in them. He indwells them by his spirit. So this is the mystery of God, the mystery of God's truth not revealed before, but now made clear is Christ is the fullness of the Godhead. And if you notice what it says, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself. That's what's been veiled, but now it is made public for all to know and for the Christian not only to know that they are the wealthiest people in the world. They have the riches that nobody else has because they have Christ. And that in Christ, are hidden all the treasure of wisdom and knowledge that is in Christ, that all the treasure of divine wisdom and knowledge have been stored up, stored up in the hiding formerly, but now displayed to those who have come to know Jesus Christ personally. Christ alone is the source of scriptural knowledge worth having and worth fighting for. And this knowledge in the word of God, is the greatest wealth that we can ever obtain or hold on to this side of eternity. Don't let it go, that's what Paul is saying to us. Don't let it go. Don't walk away from it. The revelation of God is finished. That that means we have all the word of God, but the apprehension of it may grow. We'll never grow out of, under, of studying the Word of God. We'll never grow out of it. See, the Bible will give us a lifetime of digging out the nuggets of gold and the acres of diamonds, giving us plenty of spiritual food to feed our souls Christ be, until Christ becomes all and all. So here is, you know what this is? Here is the, the Christological high point is that in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That Christ is the one whom is to be found all that is knowledgeable and worth having and all that is wisdom. And wisdom is the practical ability to understand reality from God's perspective and then to act on that understanding in your everyday life. Putting into practice what you learn. What, what do we usually do with a treasure? You know what we usually do with a treasure? We keep it. We protect it. We guard it. We prevent others from taking it from us. That's what we do. That's what we ought to do. But here, this treasure, anyone who comes to know Christ by faith can draw from his store all the wisdom and knowledge that exists. That's why when you read the word of God, God tells us what? How the world was created. What happened when we fell into sin. What God's going to do next through all what he spoke through all the prophets. Pro- 
uh, the prophets telling us the Messiah is coming. Jesus dies on the cross, right? Jesus raises from the dead. He goes to heaven. He's ascended. Today. He's at the right hand of God. He's preparing a place for us. He's praying for us. He's waiting to come back again, right? I believe the church is going to get taken out, and, and it's going to be in heaven. Then the great tribulation is going to take place. And after the great tribulation, we're going to come back. With Christ is going to come back with the saints on this earth, and we're going to rule and reign with him for a thousand years, and all the battles take place, and Christ wins the battle, and then there'll be a new heaven and new earth. This old heaven and new earth will pass away, and there'll be a place of real righteousness where there's no more division between man and God. New Jerusalem comes down to earth, and there's no more division between God and man, and God will be our God, and we will be his people. That's all in the word of God. That's all in the word of God. Who else knows that? Do you realize the treasure you have? That when it comes to the point where you have to put your uh, close your eyes in death, you are confident that because God cannot lie, you're going to be absent from the bodies to be what? Present with the Lord. So we have a hope nobody has. Well, brethren, I am not done yet, but I have to end it right there. It's worth fighting for the treasure of truth because the truth about Christ is the sharp weapon for victory. Holding to it will make us mighty in warfare. So what do we have? We have unifying love is a weapon for victory. Keeping our treasure of the truth about Christ is our sharp weapon for victory. Prayer is our weapon for victory. It's all here in the text. For what? So we stand firm in the faith and we don't move. Whatever stuff is being done in the world or being communicated to us because we know the truth. And if you know the truth, the truth will make you free. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much. Lord, your word is so incredible. Lord, it, it's, it's such a relief to know that you shoot from the hip. And Lord, you tell us directly what's going on. And thank you, Lord, for the gospel of Christ, how it transforms us. It makes us new. That we now have love for you and love for people that we didn't have before. And, Lord, it gives us the weapons to fight in the conflict and be able to win. And so I pray, Lord, that we as your people would always be unified in love. Pray, Lord, that we would always hold the treasure that we, you have given us in Christ Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that we would be praying for each other's welfare. So, Lord, we don't fall away, but we stay strong in the faith. And that you make us servants in your church to be able to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who have not yet heard it, so they may be saved. And then see what we have and become wealthy as we are in Christ Jesus. And I pray this this morning in the precious name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's stand together.